0: What I like about this spot. How many of you made it down here last week? Anybody? Oh I see a couple of hands. Wow. You're the pioneers of the group. That's awesome. Well I know where to who to call if things get rough. So we are starting, we're kind of jumping back into the Bible. It's all based out of the Bible, but what we've decided to do this year is kind of flip-flop back and forth between a biblical story or a book of the Bible, kind of an intense focus on that, and then a topic. And uh, over the last six weeks prior to the holiday, we looked at the topic that we've been called for a purpose, created for a reason. And now we're going back to the Bible itself, and we're gonna spend the next four weeks looking at the story of the Exodus. Right? One of the most common, well-known stories, um, regardless of if you're Christian, raised in the church or not, I'm sure you know all about the Exodus. You know, when we get into these types of series, my hope, my desire is that you walk away knowing a little bit more about God, about his character. An incredible thing about our God is that he does not change, right? He's from everlasting to everlasting, beginning to end, and his character does not change even slightly. And so what we see about him back in 1446 BC, it's the same as who he is now. And so my hope is that we get a better insight of who God was then. So that way we understand more of who our God is now for us. You know, before we jump into it, let's just, if you'd like, join me in prayer just to kind of focus our minds on what is true. God, we are here because you are our priority. Even for the next 50 minutes, God, you are our priority, and so we ask that you would speak us truth, that you would give us insight into your character, give us insight into ways that we can better glorify you, worship you, and live our lives. God, we are here to receive insight, pour it out upon us. Amen. All right, so the account of Exodus, the Exodus of Israel from Egypt, is one of the most powerful examples of our God as a redeemer. One who breaks, pe- breaks into people's reality is to save them from an inescapable bondage. It shows his unstoppable power against his enemies and his unyielding love for his chosen people. You know, it's also one of the most clear physical pictures of what God desires to do for us physically excuse me, for us spiritually. It paints such an obvious illustration of the slavery that we are in and the power and the love of God breaking into our messed up world to free us so that way we can be restored to our God-desired position as his sons and daughters. You know, I drew this short stick or straw when we were handing out topics. And so we got to focus on the slavery tonight. In order for us to understand how beautiful the salvation is, we need to understand how dark our slavery is. This is a side of the coin, a part of the Bible that is often glazed over and ignored, but we're gonna delve deeply into it. And so it is a little bit on the darker side of things, but that is the reality of our world. And so we gotta go there. All right, so we're studying the, the Exodus, so let's get into the story. Exodus chapter one. So it gives a little context of what's going on. First seven verses. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtaliah, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So Jacob and his sons come to Egypt seeking refuge from the famine. You guys know the story of Joseph, most likely. Joseph and the Pharaoh invite them with open arms and give them a really fertile land in which they prosper. They grow in number and in strength. But unfortunately, things do not remain good or stay easy. Let's keep reading. Next six, seven verses. Now a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in opposing tasks upon the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they opposed upon them. It was pretty obvious they were in a pretty terrible spot. Due to being intimidated by the size and the power of the Israelites, the new Pharaoh throws them into slavery. Not only did he impose these ruthless tasks that we read about, but if you keep reading, he also tried to commit infanticide, to kill every boy born to the Hebrew women. You know, even though the Israelites are the descendants of Abraham, the one to whom God promised that he would make him a powerful nation, that he would protect them against those who want to do them harm, they were in an inescapable state of bondage. Think about that. Those of you that know the story of Abraham and all the promises that came to him, right? and then to Isaac and to Jacob, and now look where they're at. Polar opposites. Polar opposites. From the promise to their reality. Why? Why did God allow this to happen to a people that he had promised good things for? You know, the text tells us nothing about the Hebrew culture during this time. However, we know that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph believed in Yahweh, and that hundreds of years passed during Israel's, Israel's time in Egypt. You know, it's very possible that the descendants of Jacob forgot about the God that had made the promises to their ancestors. You know, it seems probable that they simply assimilated into the Egyptian culture, worshiping Egyptian gods. You know, a crucial element to God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their willingness to obey, to believe that Yahweh is the only source of life, to trust him alone to provide and protect if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had not done this, they would not have received the promise. So maybe that's why Israel is now in this spot. But what's incredible, at the end of chapter two, we see a turning point. Go ahead and go to 2, 22 and 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of their slavery, their cry for help rose to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took note of them. This is such an incredible verse, section of verses, and next week we're going to focus far more on this. What I want us to see here, though, though, is that long after Egypt had enslaved them, the Israelites finally cried out to God. You know, according to the timing in the text, it seemed that they had to realize that nothing else could save them before they were willing to cry out to Yahweh for help. You know, from this point on, everything changes. And we'll look at that in the weeks to come. All right, let's start looking more at application. Like I had mentioned earlier, this is one of the most obvious physical illustrations of what humanity deals with spiritually. Every single person is created by God with the intention of being his son or daughter. Every person. However, we are born into slavery. Due to Adam and Eve's rebellion against God at the start of humanity, every single person is born with a fallen or an imperfect nature. Let's start looking at the Bible. Romans 5.12. Paul describes it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam and Eve, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. You know, Sin is simply going against our creator's design for our life and his world. Once mankind rejected God's authority and chose to trust himself and his own logic and emotion, then they broke the perfect relationship with the one who made them. As consequence of this choice, God pulled away from living in the midst of his creation, which caused mankind to become spiritually dead. God is the only thing that is eternal, right? Everything else crumbles. Without him, everything will eventually die. This is the reality we're born into. There's really no denying it. We are slaves to death. Like Pharaoh, it is an inescapable and ruthless master that will eventually take everything we know. You know, once we physically die, then we will suffer the consequences of rejecting our creator. We will live forever apart from him. That means we will not experience an ounce of the good that we experience now. To be fully cut off from the source of all that is good means that we will only know pain, loss, loneliness and despair. So both physical and spiritual death are hard to spend much time thinking about without feeling the weight press upon you, on your heart, for yourself and for those you love. But it is so crucial to recognize their reality. For the Israelites to simply try to ignore or deny the Egyptians and their control would have been foolish and downright dangerous. The same is true for us. Death is undeniable. Also, we have a, all have a longing for something better than this world provides. Therefore, we were created for something more than what this world provides. By ignoring these truths or denying that they are real, we allow ourselves to believe that we are either not slaves or that we can set ourselves free, that we can be the source of our own salvation. And just like the Israelites, we wait until we hit rock bottom before we finally cry out for deliverance, or we never do. You know, my favorite part of the Exodus, though, is how easy salvation is found. All they have to do is cry out to be saved. Cry out to the God of the Bible. Cry out for help from from the one who made everything. You know, the same is true for us spiritually as well. Romans 10, 13 lists how easy salvation is. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone calls, that's all it is. Saved from everything I just described. It is literally that simple. Through all of human history, our creator takes on the role as the redeemer. When people cry out, he steps in to save them from inescapable bondage. But in order to, to cry out, we must understand our state of slavery. If we don't believe that we are slaves, then we see no need to be saved. You know, I I gotta go a little bit deeper into our bondage. Sorry if this is at all disheartening. It's just the more I think about it, the more I read about the Bible, the more I see that this is the reality of humanity. So our rejection of God has brought about more than just physical death and eternal torment. Those are big things, I know. But if we stop there, we can deceive ourselves into believing that we only need a savior on our deathbed. That in this life, we are free. But because we kick the source of good out of our lives, evil entered this world and fights for control of our minds and our lives. You know, Paul puts it this way in Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right, that's the idea of like rejecting our creator, turning to other things for the source of life, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. You know, when humanity chose to reject their creator, God allowed us to pursue our desired course, to run down the rabbit hole of self-glorification. After the fall, this is instinct for all of us we are born with what the Bible calls the flesh, a part of ourselves, our nature that desires to honor ourselves, to do what feels best for us in the moment. We desire to be in total control of our lives. You know, It's because of this mindset that evil has a stronghold in this world. The moment that we chose to trust God instead of ourselves, a cancer began eating away at humanity. Like Paul mentioned in Romans 1, our choice to abandon God brought on every kind of wickedness and evil, covetousness and malice. It all started from that one spot. And this cancer festers in every single one of us. We are all born slaves to flesh, slaves to our own personal desires. You know, there's a lot of parents in here. Think about how quickly we notice selfishness within a toddler, right? You want to share some stories, anybody? Even if that child is raised in a perfect setting with perfect parents, the words mine and no come so naturally out of their mouth. From the age of two and on, we become experts at satisfying the deeper longings we have for personal fulfillment Whether it's in the area of wealth or love or pleasure or all of the above, we are slaves to meeting our own needs. You know, at times this enslavement is obvious. In a form of an addiction, destructive choices becomes glaringly obvious that what we are choosing to do is wrong. Most of the time, however, it is far more camouflaged. The subtle motivations that encourage us to live self-focused, to do what is best for us, to not stop and consider what our creator desires or the fact that he even exists, or to consider the ways that we can better love other people. You know, and we are truly enslaved to it. Our selfish desires, like Pharaoh, are an inescapable master. We fight against them, but we do not have the power to root them out of our nature. You know, let's look at another thing that Paul says, Romans 7. I just wanted to show you, this is not me and my thoughts on life. This is straight from God's word. For I know nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. It's such an interesting insight into what we all deal with some days more than others. It's definitely worth meditating on. You know, as I was going through preparing this, I was just simply focused on the Bible and bringing you guys truth, but in the back of my mind, I just know how powerful examples can be. For some reason, I remember the stories that a pastor tells about themselves far more than the truth that they point to in the Bible, right? Which is just a skewed perspective, but just... Ten minutes before walking here, I just thought, all right, let me think of a couple stories that kind of show the reality of this. And honestly, we all have them, and I could just open this up, and we could take turns being transparent and embarrassing ourselves. But I guess since I got the microphone, I'll give you some of mine. So from the beginning of my my time teaching here, you guys know that I used to be strongly addicted to smoking weed. For 12 years, from the age of 15 to 27, it was just my central focus, and it did so much to destroy my life, right? Whether that was my own personal intellect and the relationships or with my wife or what God was calling me to do is just, I was in such heavy bondage until I was 27, Till I finally cried out for God and he broke it miraculously. And so we have examples like that. And I know others of you in here have similar examples of those addictions that just took over your life. But those more camouflaged, subtle things are there and they're, almost, they're, they're so much harder to recognize. You know, when I analyze how I spend my time, it's obvious that I am my own master. So much of my day is spent doing what I want to do, what is best for me. It is rare for me to stop and think about what I can do to help other people or what my creator desires me to do in those moments. You know, if you want to know where and how your selfish enslavements play out, look at how you spend your time or your money. They are both strong indicators of who our master is. You know, due to how subtle these desires tend to be and how much we usually enjoy them, Right? We enjoy what we are enslaved to. It is rare that we cry out for help until our world begins to crumble, until our, our addictions threaten our bank accounts or our lives, or until our drive for wealth or pleasure weighs heavily along on the relationships that are so important to us. However, we don't have to wait that long. It is so important to understand the reality of our slavery, even if you haven't hit rock bottom. Your flesh is real and it is truly destructive. You know, when we finally do cry out for deliverance, our creator stays true to his character. Not only does he grant us eternal life, but even more powerfully for the here and now, he purifies our innermost being. I love the way Ezekiel 36 puts it. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. You know, when we cry out for deliverance from our selfish motives, God gives us a new heart. For the Jewish people, back when Ezekiel was writing, heart was the center of their being, the idea of their minds or their emotions, their willpower, what makes us who we are. When we cry out for salvation, God gives us a different set of desires that will guide and influence our decisions. This is the Spirit. God himself living within us, guiding us in accordance with his design for your lives but I gotta stay on the darker side of things. It's crucial to recognize, to know, that our fleshly nature is not fully eradicated when we receive a new heart. Our fleshly nature, that fallen part of who we are, that we're born into, is not fully removed when we cry out for salvation. Upon salvation, we are atoned, forgiven, and reconciled, reconnected to our creator. Nothing can change this. If you want to debate about this, come and talk to me. Let's dig through the word. But the moment we cry out for, for salvation, we are fully changed on a soul level, reconnected to our creator, forgiven for everything we have ever done and ever will do. However, in this life, our natural instincts continue to live with us along with our new heart. This means that we must battle between which master we desire to submit to day after day, the flesh or the spirit, our selfish nature or God and his plans for us. You know, Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5. Thanks, Seth. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, preventing you from doing what you want. Just because we have been delivered from the inescapable bond of our former master, sin doesn't mean that we are no longer in need of crying out for help. The past years or decades of living under the direct influence of our selfishness has created habits and belief systems that need to be unlearned and replaced by truth. These faulty belief systems still guide us today even though we are free. You know, what I want you to walk away with tonight understanding is that no matter where you are at in your spiritual journey, you are still in need of a savior. Whether it's redemption from your sinful state, your broken soul, or redemption from the faulty belief systems and habits that still influence your thoughts and your behaviors, we are all in need of a powerful help that comes only from the almighty maker of everything. When we recognize our state of slavery, then we are much more willing to cry out for deliverance. When we cry out to our creator, he does what he has done since the beginning of time. He saves. He purifies our souls. Like I was saying, he reconciles us back to him. He cleanses us fully of all of our impurities on a soul level. He also refines our minds and belief systems. He grabs a hold of what you've been hanging on to for so long and he gives you the opportunity to shake that free and to reshape it into the way he desires you to think and to live. He gives us the grace to overcome addictions. No matter how long you've been struggling with that darkness, he will give you the power to break free of that bondage. He guides us to love well, which is a huge ramification of us living selfishly is the fact that we don't love as well as we could. But when we cry out for help, he gives us the grace to do that better. He gives us the strength to deal with the hardships of this life. And that's another aspect I didn't even look at, the brokenness of this world due to our sins and all the hardships we have to go through. As you go through whatever ailment that is, sickness or problems in life, crying out to God, and he is a source of redemption and he will give you what you need to move through that hardship. You know, no matter how deep and dark or subtle and ignorable your slavery may be, God is a redeemer that breaks every form of darkness. When you cry out to Him, He will set you free. Let's just pray while they come up. God right here in this moment, and just speak collectively that we are in need of your salvation. That we are broken individuals that have no hope apart from you. We ask you to pour your redemption, your salvation upon us. Eternally, from the here and now, just give us your grace, because apart from that, we have no good in our lives. Nothing of worth. It's you and you alone we depend upon.